Beautiful, beautiful worship. And he is worthy. Um, I, I uh, as we were finishing there and, and singing, and uh, I just felt like um, I don't want to assume anything about anybody. I don't want people to assume things about me. Um, but here we are. We're a group of people who profess to follow Christ, and we have sung his praises, and we have prayed, and now we're coming to his word, and uh, I just know that it's a, it is a temptation for us to just go through the motions. It's like, now we're going to do a sermon. It's like a little TED talk, and we're going to hear this and hopefully get a you know, little wind in our sails, and then we're going to go back to our week this week, whatever it has, and we're just going to do life again, and then we'll show up next week. And so I want to pause for just a minute, and I want to ask you to do something. I want you to do some business with the Lord. I want you to ask him to speak to you this morning. And I don't even know if you expected that when you came. Like I said, you know, we just go to church and we hear sermons. We've heard hundreds, maybe thousands of sermons. Let's ask God to speak to us in a fresh, powerful, life-changing way today. Would you do that with me? All right, so close your eyes, open your hearts to the Lord, and let's pray. Father in heaven, you saw fit to speak to us, and we're told that your word is your word, that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to the very deep of who we are. And so, Lord, I want to ask you today, we as a community of faith, we want to ask you today to speak to us from your word. Holy Spirit, you, we're told you guide us into all truth. Help us to see and hear and understand and apply truth to our lives. Lord, would you use your word today to transform us? Thank you for being so kind to reveal yourself to us. We love you, and we thank you for loving us. And I pray that in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. So if you'll open your Bibles or your phones or however you would like to read the word today, uh, open it to Acts 9. We're going to get back into this chapter. And um, last week, Jeff took us through the, the conversion story of Saul, who also is named Paul in our Bibles. He has both of those names. Um, today, you're going to hear me refer to him as Saul most of the time. But if, if I say Paul, that's interchangeable. So uh, no worries there. It's interesting. This conversion story that we find in the beginning of chapter nine appears three times in the book of Acts. So here, Luke is just telling us what happened. He's reporting, he's narrating. But the other two times, he is going to record Saul telling his story to some other groups of people. It's just, we just ought to pay attention to the fact it's three times in the book of Acts, so it must be important. There is something here that we are supposed to grasp about the life of Paul, and uh, we want to make sure that we catch it. Those other two instances are chapter 22 and 26. Now, in addition to that, in Paul's letters, and they're also known as Paul's epistles, that's another word for letters, um, he describes several times who he was prior to his conversion, and then also what he was like after he came to Christ. So once again, there's something that we're supposed to take from that. It's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. And we're supposed to glean something from it. And if you ever wonder why we have one of our five connections is connecting backward with our story. There it is, right up there. Second connection from the top. The reason that we do that is because our stories, it's not about us. 
It, it is about us, but it's more so about the work of God in us. How did he bring us to himself? How did he open our eyes to see what is true? How did we come to a place where we would literally abandon faith in ourselves and trust in him? That's the story. And then it doesn't just happen right at this moment of conversion. It carries on through the rest of our lives. That's our story. This is Paul's story. And we're meant to not just hear it and nod and think, how inspirational. We're supposed to hear it and be changed by it. Especially because this is God's inspired word. It is intended to make us different as a result of having heard it. Now, with Paul's story in mind, one of the most prominent themes in his story is grace. Now, you could say, well, gosh, that's a theme of all of our stories, right? We all have to have God's grace in order to be saved, so that's true. But this is Paul. He wrote most of the letters in the New Testament, and of all the times the word grace is used in the New Testament, two-thirds of those appear in Paul's letters. He uses that word so frequently, he's known as the apostle of grace. So that, that got me thinking as I was studying chapter 9, thinking about Jeff's message last week and where we're going this week, and I thought, Grace may be the best possible lens for us to look through to see what we're seeing in chapter 9. Now, quick reminder, grace is favor that is unmerited or undeserved. In other words, you can't do anything to get it. It is a gift. The only thing that you can do with grace is receive it. That's it. Or reject it but you can't earn it. Grace is also power or enablement for good, for our good, and for our good works. So grace is active in all of that. So with a lens of grace, let's read the rest of Paul's story. We're picking up after his conversion in verse 19b. It says, for some days... Saul was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, isn't this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. We'll stop there for just a minute. Um, as far as the chapter as a whole, from verses 1 to 31, we're going to see a lot of movement in the life of Paul. Most of it's geographic. So he starts in Jerusalem. He goes to Damascus. He has his conversion there. We're going to learn here in just a minute that he goes to Arabia for a period of time. He comes back to Damascus. Then he leaves and goes to Jerusalem and then from there, he goes to Caesarea and then on to Tarsus. So a lot of activity there in Paul's life. I would say his story illustrates uh, what, what the Apostle John says in John 1.16, grace upon grace. And that's really your outline today. I'm, I'm going to look at Paul's story with all of these illustrations of God's grace in his life, and perhaps it will remind us of God's grace in our lives. The first grace we come across is grace for ignorance. Grace for ignorance. Now, I don't say that in a pejorative way. Ignorance, just very objectively, is 
being uneducated, unaware, or uninformed. It's just simply not knowing something that can be known, and it has an effect. Paul would later say to his disciple Timothy in 1.13, he points to ignorance as the reason for all that he did in terms of persecution and ravaging the church. So it wasn't a justification for it. It was just an explanation to say, this is why I did what I did. So how does that relate to the story here? It says that Saul was with the disciples and he was in the synagogue. So just imagine, think about Saul's life prior to his conversion. Now he's among disciples who trusted in Christ before he did. And then he's also in the synagogues and he's around people who should know what he now knows, but but they're ignorant. There is a need for God's grace in the midst of that. And those settings personally confronted Saul with his errors, with the the lack of knowledge that he had previously had. And that's surprising given all that he did know. Uh, Philippians 3, 5 and 6, it says he was circumcised, this is his testimony, circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, they knew the law better than anybody, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's pretty stout. And it's fair to say, well, Paul, how did you miss this? How did you miss Jesus? What was wrong with you? He would say, I was ignorant. I just couldn't connect the dots. It was all right there in front of me, and I missed it. Saul knew Old Testament messianic prophecy as well as anyone. Jesus just wasn't the answer. It it was like uh, if you think of the Old Testament as a cipher of sorts, like there's this mysterious Messiah that it speaks of. Nobody knows exactly who it is and when they're going to arrive. And so all of the Jews are looking and waiting and watching and miss Jesus. And yet Paul is given the grace to see Jesus for who he really is. And he finally fills in all of the blanks of his understanding of the Old Testament. Now, grace for ignorance um, and the confrontation that Saul was experiencing, I, I thought of this when he's in the synagogue and he's saying, Jesus is the son of God. At the very same moment, what he is also saying, given who he was, is, I was wrong. And he has to say it again and again and again and again. I was wrong. I missed it. But God's grace covers that. He can say that freely and just sit in the fact that God was so kind, even though he was ignorant. He showed him what was true and brought him to life in Christ. It can be really hard to live with who we were, can't it? That kind of takes us to this next expression of grace. Uh, Notice they referred to him as the man who made havoc on the people of God. How would you like to be known for that? Everywhere you go, oh, you're that guy. Hard to live with, isn't it? That word havoc means devastation, injury, or destruction. And so the second grace that I felt like appears here is a grace for cruelty. Paul, Saul, was a cruel, cruel man. And it's helpful to remember God's grace for him, but you know what? It's also important to remember God's grace for those who have been offended, for those who have been persecuted. Listen to how Saul describes how he treated these people. Acts 22, 4. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Keep in mind those men and women are husbands and wives. 
fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, friends. That's who he was delivering to prison. Imagine the heartache. Acts 26, 10 and 11. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That's the group of people that he was with in Damascus. Don't you, need, don't you think they needed some grace to see Paul, Saul, differently than they did? I want you to imagine the person that has hurt you most. I know a name pops right into your head. It's not hard. Now I want you to imagine that person coming to you and saying, I was wrong. I missed it. But God's grace has changed me. And I have new life in him. Will you forgive me? And here's what I know in my own life. That my readiness, my willingness to extend grace to that person tells everything about how I have appropriated grace in my own life. So Saul needed grace, but those who suffered under his persecution, they needed grace as well. And obviously, they did appropriate it because they welcomed Saul in despite all that he had done. So grace for ignorance, grace for cruelty, and then the third is a grace for weakness. Notice in verse 22 it says, Saul increased all the more in strength. Now that implies deficiency, doesn't it? If he gained strength, he must have been weak prior to, but this weakness is not physical in nature because his strength, it, it, it tells us, enabled him to confound the Jews and prove that Jesus was the Christ. So his strength is really related to something around knowledge or understanding, um, wisdom. He, he gained strength in those instances so that he could communicate well with the people uh, of Damascus. Now, where did he gain that? Strength. This is where we get an insight that isn't directly in the text that Luke writes, but we find it elsewhere. He gained strength in a wilderness experience of sorts. If you just jot down Galatians 1, 15 through 17, he tells us something that happened while he was in Damascus. It says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, speaking of the Lord, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. He's speaking of right after he came to Christ. But I went away to Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. So somewhere in here, and commentators kind of land all different places, but sometime after his conversion and prior to him leaving Damascus, he went away to Arabia. We're not told anything about what he did there except that he met with the Lord, and the Lord did something with him there that strengthened him so that he could communicate effectively wherever God would take him and use him. His description of what he received is actually right before that statement in Galatians 1, 15 through 17. In verses 11 through 12, he says this, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what he got in Arabia. He was grounded in the gospel 
And that became the foundation for everything that he did afterward. So as a result, Saul was strengthened. He was able to effectively communicate the truth about Jesus to the Jewish community. Grace for weakness. Next we have grace for humiliation. Now let's back up again. Think of Saul prior to his conversion. I want you to imagine what he felt like on his way to Damascus, given all that we know about him. We're told he was breathing threats and murder. Have you ever been angry and it felt good? It felt powerful? Felt like you got control of things? I think that felt good to Saul. I think he's on his way to Damascus, and he's got letters from the chief priests, the high priests in Jerusalem. He's got power, and he's on his way, and he can pick anybody that he wants to, bind them up and take them back to Jerusalem. He is in control. That feels really good to broken people in a sin-wrecked world. Then... He's knocked to the ground by a blinding light and confronted by none other than Jesus Christ. I I think his feelings of power sort of evaporated, right? In just a moment. Then in his blind condition, he has to be led by hand into Damascus. And then he's restored by one of his targets, Ananias. Next, he is converted. He proclaims Jesus. Like, imagine, right? You come to this realization and you've given your life to Christ. So you go to the synagogue and you got, you know, the woman at the well right after she meets Jesus, she goes back to her village and she's like, you're never going to believe it. I met him, the Messiah. I think that's what Saul was like here. He goes to the synagogue. He's got, guys, listen up. I can't wait to tell you. And the Jews respond by plans to kill him. Just imagine what that feels like. Remember, he's the Hebrew of Hebrews. The model Pharisee knows the law backwards and forwards. He's smarter than everybody in the room. But they think he's a fool. How humiliating. And then finally, everybody decides it's better for him to get out of town. So he's lowered in a basket from a window under the cover of night so that he can sneak away. Where's all that power? Not a big ego booster for Saul. I'm sure he felt very vulnerable. This was a humiliating exercise, but it's so interesting. In 2 Corinthians, he talks about what he comes to understand about weakness, and this is one of the stories he tells. He talks about how Hardship and weakness has allowed him to understand the grace of God, the power of God that is demonstrated in our weakness. That's grace for humiliation. He says explicitly in talking about, remember he receives a thorn to keep him humble after all that he has seen and heard and knows. And the Lord says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. That's 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He would also write to the Philippians in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him 
who strengthens me. He understood God's grace in the midst of his great deficiency in the humiliating circumstances of his life. So grace for ignorance, grace for cruelty, grace for weakness, and grace for humiliation. Let's pick up in verse 26 after he has escaped Damascus. It says, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, that's the Greek-speaking Jews, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. The next grace that uh, pops out of this passage is the grace for suspicion. The grace for suspicion Notice he attempted to join the disciples. Like he shows up, hey guys, I'm Saul. (laughs) And they know Saul, right? So they're afraid of him. And didn't believe he was a disciple. Now guys, it's just so easy to read the text and to just be unaffected by it. I want you to think about you coming to church this morning and you walking through the doors, and all of us avoiding you, like very obviously seeing you, and and then word kind of gets back to you that we don't even think you're a Christian. What does that feel like? That's what it felt like to Saul. He's not some, you know, machine He's just a man. That had to be hard. Now, their suspicion is understandable, right? Given his resume. The last time they saw or heard of Saul, he was enraged in persecution, imprisoning and killing their friends, their family. So that's, that's what they know of him. And honestly, pretending to be a disciple and kind of cruising in the back door, that'd be a brilliant strategy for finding some more, wouldn't it? So it, it is understandable. By the way, it's also been three years since he left Jerusalem to go to Damascus. To, so it's been a while. And then all of a sudden, he just pops up and claims to be one of them. So what does God do in the midst of that for Saul? Well, God's grace came to Saul in a person, in his conversion, in the person of Christ, but God's grace comes to Saul again in a person, and that is in the person of Barnabas. His name, the son, means the son of encouragement. And he became Saul's friend and advocate. We need a Barnabas, don't we? Don't we need somebody who knows us? They know the story. And they recognize they have every reason, like everybody else, to suspect us, but they don't. They they take a risk despite what they know about us. Like, I'm going to stand with you. I'm going to go with you and introduce you and connect you and help you become a part of this community of faith despite your story. That's a beautiful gift. Barnabas helps Saul gain the trust of the apostles and he makes a way for him to integrate with the community of faith. And I've asked you this before, and I'll keep asking you, who is your Barnabas? You know, we have the four square relationships, Paul, Barnabas, Timothy, and Nicodemus. So who is your Barnabas? Who is that person that knows you, and I mean knows you, and loves you, 
They don't excuse your sin, but they pray for you and call you to more. Who is that in your life? Everybody needs it. The apostle Paul needed a Barnabas. So now Saul is back in Jerusalem and he would have been confronted with countless memories of his former life, wouldn't he? All that he did there. And I think the most natural thing for Saul to do would be to drown in what we call today, they didn't call it then, but toxic shame and regret. He understandably would have asked the question, how can I lead these people that I have so abused? How could they ever follow me? So the next grace that emerges here is grace for toxic shame. Now shame, healthy shame, all that is is just a recognition of our humanity, of our deficiency, of our needs, our brokenness. That, that's all it is. Toxic shame takes that to another place of worthlessness, self-loathing, self-hatred, even self-destruction. That's where toxic shame goes. It, it, it says, you are bad. You are wrong. You are worthless. That's the voice. But that's where a lot of us go when we think about our story even when we're in a wonderful place, full of grace, we can go there and say, I, I know, I know what you're saying, but I don't believe it. God has grace for that. Healthy shame, that prompts us to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And then makes appropriate amends, whatever that might mean. Toxic shame is the voice of the enemy, the one called the accuser of God's people. That's in Revelation 12, 10. And our, mess, our enemy's message promotes those thoughts of self-contempt, which is not biblically true, right? We are made in the image of God. We are loved beyond comprehension. He loved us so much that he sent his own son to die in our place. The Holy Spirit, the member of the Trinity, lives within us. We are called the temple of God. Does that sound worthless to you? So when you hear that voice, you can say, uh-uh, that's not true. I am flawed. I am broken. I struggle. I fail. But I am a child of the King. And he loves me. There is a difference between payback and natural consequences of sinful behavior. So Paul didn't owe them or God anything. What Paul needed to do was just live with the reality that there's going to be some hurt. There's going to be some woundedness. He will need to make things right relationally with these people. But nothing that he do, does today is going to change what happened back then. He can just own it, ask for forgiveness, and then move on with God's call on his life. I think that's what it looks like to appropriate God's grace for toxic shame. Next, grace to endure. We're told that Paul went in and out among them, that he preached boldly, and he disputed the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. And that's really a pattern of sort for his ministry as we, we're going to follow him through the book of Acts. That's what we're going to see. He goes into a community. He connects with the community of faith. He goes in and out among them. He preaches boldly, and he confronts untruth wherever he finds it. And this, in my mind, kind of raised the value that we have here, and that is a long obedience in the same direction. We don't just do this one time. We don't do this for just one year. This is a way of life, doing life with each other. 
in exercising um, this calling on our life. Um, Saul here was beginning to fight the good fight of faith. This is what it looked like in its earliest form. And then he would later write about the good fight to his disciple Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 12. He urges Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. And then in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. And now there's laid up for me a crown, a reward for having been faithful to God's call on my life. I would say that's evidence that God's grace was sufficient for him, wasn't it? Years and years of hard, painful ministry. God's grace was sufficient. It sustained him. Well, after a short time in Jerusalem, about three or four weeks, Saul is again targeted for assassination by the Jews. And so his brothers, it says, brought him down to Caesarea, which is on the coast, and uh, then sent him off to Tarsus. That's verse 30. And here I thought of God's grace for uncertainty. You know, I, like, I don't know the future. Do you? I know what God's called me to. I know what God's called us to. But I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. I need, you need, God's grace for the uncertainty of tomorrow. And I'm thinking about all of this movement for Paul, all these different places he's been and he's going. And it looks like the brothers just said, hey, Saul, the Jews want to kill you. We're shipping you off to Tarsus. I don't know how much say he had in that. It just sounds like that's where you're going. And he had, to, he had to embrace that, to just go, this is life, walking with God. Honestly, since the moment Saul hit the dirt on his road to Damascus, there's been a lot of uncertainty, a lot of surprises, a lot of twists and turns. Later in his life, Paul would urge the Christians in Philippi to accept, there's acceptance here for change. I, I actually want us to read this together, if you'll put that. Philippians 4, 5 through 7, read this with me. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's God's grace for the uncertainty in your life and in mine. Our passage concludes with uh, Luke's third major progress report for the church. Let me read that to you, verse 31. So the church, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Uh, very interesting. Several commentators attribute that description to Saul's absence. Now, if I'm Saul, that kind of hurts my feelings a little bit. <laughs> I mean, he's certainly stirred things up wherever he went. And he gets sent off. We're not going to see Saul for a while uh, after this uh, verse 31. Peter is going to kind of take the limelight for a while. But I think this has more to do with the church than with Saul. Certainly he had his effect. But just notice, they're practicing what Jesus prescribed. They're just doing what God said to do. And isn't it interesting? Uh, there shouldn't be a surprise Growth, and that's here, that's grace to grow. The church was walking in the fear of the Lord, as they should. The church was walking in the comfort and the power of the Holy Spirit, as they should. And then, no surprise, the church multiplied. 
It grew. It expanded. It's just evidence of the fact that healthy things grow. So this is a healthy church. Not a perfect church, but a healthy one. And they're doing as God prescribed. So they're gaining depth, maturity, and breadth, influence. They're maturing. They are disciples who are making disciples who make disciples. They are, as we say, cultivating, connected followers of Christ. And they're multiplying. That's what we should expect to see. That's just what happens when we do as God has called us to do. Grace upon grace. Here's what I want to ask you to do for your so what. I want you to look at that list. All the ways that God's grace has been given to you. And I want you to think about where you might most need to apply God's grace to your life. Which of those areas just, it's like, Lord, I need to appropriate your grace in that area so that I would grow and change. And I want you to just look at this verse as you're prayerfully asking God to lead you. Encouraging words from Hebrews 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's where you go to get it. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You will never, ever, ever exhaust the grace of God. But you can sure miss applying it to your life where it's needed. So today, just ask the Lord, show me where I most need it, and then help me to apply it in that area. Take a moment, prayerfully consider that, and then I'll pray for us. the grace that we need and we say by faith today that your grace is sufficient Lord help us to walk as if that is true and Lord wherever we need your grace we, we need it everywhere but Lord wherever it seems most needed would you help us to apply it today and every day uh, hereafter Lord, I pray that our church would be a fountain of grace in our city. I pray that we could be the most gracious people that anyone would ever meet. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good, encouraging word. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many times I've said this over the years, 23 years of ministry, but we, we really don't plan a whole lot of what happens. It's just the Lord kind of has a way of giving us what we need right when we need it. And so it's, it's uh, very encouraging to me that this passage would be today's passage, a reminder that there is a lot of uncertainty in life. But God is leading us, and his grace is sufficient, and uh, he can walk us through change. 
And we've got some change that we have to walk through as a church. And we'll feel a lot of things about that, and that's totally okay. But what we don't want to do is to lose heart because of change. We want to say, you know what, this is what God is doing. So I want to invite Benji up. He's got uh, some news for us as a church family, and then we're going to pray for him. So Benji, take it away. Yes. Hey, church family. I think I know most of you in here, but if if you don't know me, I'm Benji and uh, been serving here as student pastor for 14 years, Uh, a long time overseeing our uh, awesome FSM students and our young adults ministry. Um, and man, what a joy, like just seeing lives transformed by the good news of Jesus, right? These mm-hmm. students just come alive and man, and, and when you have 14 years of track record getting to see some of these young seventh graders, like dads now, you know, it's just like, ah, oh, <laughs> scary, but also <laughs> yes. like, God's grace is good, right? Like mm-hmm. you see the power of the gospel. Um, um, so, uh, but yeah, this last year, there really has been a stirring in my heart and really sensing God is calling me to, uh, out of student ministry into uh, something new, a, a new ministry. Uh, and, uh, and so, of course, that's um, been really challenging, you know, just that decision and just wrestling, you know, with that, with God, um, but really sensing like this is what he's calling me to do. Um, a lot of emotions there. I mean, I've, me and Rebecca, we were, uh, we've been 20 years working with students, you know, mm. so students are, uh, you know, uh, that's all we, what we've done, right? We love that. We had a passion for that, um, still have a passion for that. So when um, so I think it was just mixed with emotions. I think one is sadness. You know, um, our family, we haven't just, you know, as Paul says in First Thessalonians, we, you know, we gave the gospel, but man, we gave our lives as well. So we have invested in the lives of so many different people. So there's just a deep, deep sadness when God calls you away from something you love, right? Like, it's just like, huh. Like, Lord, are you sure? You know, like, uh, but like, it's, there's, a, there's a deep sadness for all of us there, uh, which it should be, right? Like, if we're really connected and yeah. we've loved each other so well, there should be sadness there. So, so we're feeling that. Uh, definitely some fear of the unknown. Like, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I, I just know God's saying, hey, do you know, you're out of, pulling you out of this into something new. And I don't know exactly what that is. There's nothing set up. There's nothing in the works. It's just, the Lord's calling, you know, he's moving that direction. So um, I'm just trying to follow that lead. Yeah. Um, I know for sure, man, if you know me at all, you know I love missions. I love disciple making. And the uh, Lord's gifted me to be a shepherd. So it's going to be something with that. Um, but I don't know exactly what that is. So, so um, and then also there's just this, uh, uh, this like, a, just, like with that fear and sadness, there is this like excitement and passion and joy because you're like, you know, God's calling you to something. And you know it's going to be really hard and difficult, but you know it's going to be really good. Mm. And, um, man, in 20 years with students, who knows what the next 20 look like, but there's something really good God has for us and our family. And so that's really exciting. So, so I'm all over the place. Some days the fear overwhelms. <laughs> you're like, oh! Some days the, the passion's there. And it's like, yes, I can't wait. You know, so it's everywhere. So, so this is not goodbye today, um, but really we wanted to just invite you in, right? As, you know, we say together is better. Like, we... we we need you guys to pray for us and our family. Uh, we're asking for clarity. Uh, we're asking the Lord to um, just unity, you know, and then, and then just like courage just to step into whatever that is, mm-hmm. you know, when he makes it clear. Um, so we're asking for those prayers. And, um, and then also just, um, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm confident though. Like, you know, I know God's got something for us. He's called something. And, and I'm, and I'm, I'm really, like, confident of, like, what he's going to do here, you know? Like, I know that's, you're feeling some stuff too, right? Um, and so, but man, here's, the, here's, here's the thing I want to share with you guys. Really, like, this ministry, FSM, Young Adults, like, it's never been built around me and my personality. It's, a bit, it's built around the good news of Jesus Amen. and his call to make disciples, to make, who make disciples, who make disciples, right? That will change the world. And so we've just been a champion of that. And, and the good news is, like, Connor, the FSM leaders, students and parents, they get that, and they're going to continue to do that. Yeah. Our young adults ministry relaunched this year. Like, it was under that vision, and a small group said, let's do this, mm-hmm. and they're going to continue to do that. So, so I am hopeful, right, because that's not going to change. That's who we are, and, and um, that's what he's called us to do. And so that's the beautiful thing is that that piece of the mission, it hasn't been done by me, just me. It's like a community doing that together, and that's mm-hmm. not going to stop. Mm-hmm. And so that's my encouraging thing to you. So just... Uh, grateful for you. Absolutely, we love you in this church, and just 
I want to invite you guys in to be praying for uh, this new season for our family and for the church. Um, and just help us all, you know, lean into Jesus more, right? If we can savor him, if we can lean into him more yeah. and more in this season, um, I know it'll, it'll be good. It'll be hard. Yeah. It'll be difficult, but it'll be good, which it, you know, should be. So anyway, I just want to share that with you um, so you can hear from my heart and my family's heart. Yeah. It's a good word. Yeah. Thank you, Benji. Um, that is true. You know, we, we've always tried to build this church around a community, not around a personality, not around a person, but around Christ and uh, just kind of walking together in community. We all have different parts and roles to play, but it, it really is all of us doing that together. And um, I, I'm sure that you feel all kinds of things about what you've just heard, especially if you just heard it for the first time. We've been talking about this for a while. But um, feel that. Invite the Lord into that. If you have questions, come ask. We'll, we'll tell you. There's, like, there's nothing you know, behind some kind of closed door or something. It's like, we're just walking this out. And what I have seen in 23 years of our church's ministry is change happens. That's, that's just the way it is, right? That's life. So we want to walk through this change, trusting God, leaning into him, as you said, Benji. And uh, let's see what God does uh, for the bakers and for fellowship and for his kingdom, most importantly, okay? So we want to ask you to pray. Very serious about that. Be praying for the bakers and for FSM, for the young adult ministry. Let's ask God to lead us in all of those places and provide for us all that we need, okay? I want to close us in prayer around those directions. And then, Benji, uh, hang around here yeah, for a minute. I'll, yeah, I'll do the same. And thank you, church, for joining us in this, all right? Father in heaven, um, Man, I think about the bakers and their first arrival at fellowship. And I thank you for the beautiful, beautiful work that you have done in them and through them all of these years. And I thank you, as hard as it is, I thank you for this calling on their lives and this new season that is in front of them. And we confess that it is scary and it is foggy. And there's a lot about it that... Uh, causes us to uh, just to pause. And so we ask you to bring clarity and direction and provision uh, for the bakers, for FSM, for young adults, uh, for this church, Lord. We ask you to lead us wherever you please and uh, give us glad hearts to follow passionately and uh, we thank you for that. Thank you that you hear us. None of this is a surprise to you. And uh, we can rest in that. Give us peace. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Love you. Love you. Thank you. All right.